This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussions of drug use and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In late August of 1968, the Democratic National Convention was overshadowed by violent clashes between the Chicago PD and political action groups. Members of MOBE and the Yippies flooded the city to speak out against the Vietnam War and other social injustices. The police met them with force. An independent panel headed by attorney Daniel Walker reported in December 1968 that police riots were to blame for escalating the brutality. Although the Walker report did acknowledge that some of the protesters attacked the police, it concluded that on the part of the police, there was enough wild club swinging, enough cries of hatred, enough gratuitous beating to make the conclusion inescapable that individual policemen, and lots of them, committed violent acts far in excess of the requisite force for crowd dispersal or arrest. However, Chicago's 68-year-old mayor, Richard Daley, didn't agree with the report's conclusions. The convention was supposed to be a feather in his administration's cap. Instead, it had turned into one of the biggest embarrassments in the Democratic Party's history. If Mayor Daley accepted that his police officers were to blame for the horrific violence, it meant that, by extension, he would have to accept some responsibility as well. Instead, he organized a grand jury to prosecute the protest organizers under the guise of violating the Anti-Riot Act. On March 20, 1969, they delivered indictments against Rennie Davis, David Dellinger, and Thomas Hayden of MOBE, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin of the Yippies, Black Panther Party chairman Bobby Seale, and Chicago political organizers John Froines and Lee Weiner. If found guilty, the Chicago Eight faced up to 10 years in prison. They had gathered in Chicago to preserve others' freedoms, 
Now they would have to fight for their own. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. Welcome to our second episode on the trial of the Chicago Eight, a group of protesters accused of inciting violent riots during the Democratic National Convention in late August of 1968. Last week, we examined the tumultuous socio-political environment of the 1960s and what led Moab and the Yippies to protest the 1968 Democratic National Convention. After detailing the various clashes between protesters and the police, we discussed why the Chicago Eight were indicted for violating the Anti-Riot Act and found themselves facing a significant prison sentence. This week, we'll dive into the trial itself. We'll see if the prosecution was able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendants conspired to incite violent riots, or if the only thing they were guilty of was trying to make their voices heard. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event, July 22nd through August 9th. All your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Like millions of others, 49-year-old defense attorney William Kunstler watched the televised events of the 1968 Democratic National Convention with horror. As one of the country's preeminent civil rights lawyers, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. The sight of people being mercilessly beaten for what he believed was the peaceful expression of their First Amendment rights to free speech and freedom of assembly made him sick to his stomach. When the indictment of the Chicago Eight was announced on March 20, 1969, Kunstler and his associate, Leonard Weinglass, jumped at the chance to represent them. All accepted Kunstler's offer to be their attorney, except Bobby Seale, who preferred to have his personal lawyer, Charles Gary, represent him. The trial date was set for September 24, 1969, with Judge Julius Hoffman, no relation to the Yippie defendant, Abby Hoffman, slated to oversee the hearings. Judge Hoffman was connected to Chicago's Mayor Daley. They were former law partners. Immediately, 
Kunstler realized he'd be fighting an uphill battle. From his experience with other civil rights cases, Kunstler knew that the FBI actively spied on radical leftist groups. He suspected there was a significant chance that his clients had been wiretapped and filed a pretrial motion on May 9, 1969, to compel the government to reveal if they conducted electronic surveillance on any of the Chicago Eight. On June 13th, the government responded. They could legally wiretap U.S. citizens without a warrant for national security reasons. Therefore, they didn't have to reveal the existence of any electronic surveillance on the Chicago Eight. This only made Kunstler more convinced that surveillance had taken place. Nevertheless, the trial proper began on September 24, 1969. From the outset, it was clear that Kunstler was right to suspect that Judge Hoffman wouldn't be a neutral party. For example, before jury selection, the defense prepared a list of 54 questions to ask potential jurors. Many members of the older generation looked down on the rebellious nature of the protesters, it was important that Kunstler weed out anyone with preconceived opinions of the defendant's actions or the counterculture in general. Some of the questions were, do you know who Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix are? Would you let your son or daughter marry a yippie? And if your children are female, do they wear brassiers all the time? But Judge Hoffman only allowed Kunstler and Weinglass to ask one of their prepared questions. Are you or do you have any close friends or relatives who are employed by any law enforcement agencies? As a result, the jury was overwhelmingly white, middle-class, and middle-aged. It was less than one day into the trial, and the deck already seemed stacked against the defendants. And the Chicago Eight weren't making it any easier on themselves either. They shunned several aspects of courtroom decorum, Many of them wore casual clothes, and the defense's table was frequently littered with snacks, newspapers, and, in one case, a bag of marijuana. But this rebellious attitude was part of their plan to bring the trial to the attention of young people across the country. The defense wanted to make the case into a contrast between the old, white establishment and the colorful, outspoken counterculture. But winning in the court of public opinion was one thing, winning in Judge Hoffman's domain was another. The prosecution was led by straight-laced 45-year-old U.S. attorney Thomas Foran and his youthful protege Richard Schultz. For them, it was incredibly important to prove that the defendants had deliberately incited violence during the convention week. To that end, when plainclothes police officer Robert Murray took the stand on October 1, 1969, he claimed that yippie Jerry Rubin had incited the protesters to attack the police in Lincoln Park on August 26, 1968. According to Murray, Rubin led a crowd of 200 people in a face-off against a squad of 10 or so policemen. After shouting some obscenities, Rubin allegedly flicked a cigarette butt at the officers. Murray believed it was a signal for the other protesters to begin throwing objects at them. Murray claimed Rubin told protesters, Tonight, we're not going to give up the park. We have to fight them. 
We have to meet violence with violence. During cross-examination, defense attorney William Kunstler zeroed in on Murray's recollection of Jerry Rubin throwing the cigarette butt that supposedly signaled the protesters to attack. Although Murray could clearly remember Rubin throwing the cigarette, he hadn't seen Rubin actually take it out, light it, or smoke it. It had suddenly appeared in his hand. Kunstler tried to use this discrepancy to portray Murray as an unreliable witness. Through his questions, he suggested to the jury that the police officer was making the whole story up. Kunstler's cross-examination of Murray was also notable for containing one of the many verbal sparring matches between the defense and Judge Hoffman. Before starting the day's proceedings, Kunstler insisted that the prosecution had violated a statute of the American Bar Association that prohibited attorneys from making unfair or derogatory personal reference to opposing counsel. Specifically, Kunstler took exception with Foran and Schultz calling the defense team unethical. As a civil rights attorney, Kunstler took personal ethics very seriously. In his opinion, there was no grosser insult to an attorney in a courtroom than to be called unethical by opposing counsel. Judge Hoffman was not moved. He told Kunstler to get on with the proceedings and wouldn't hear any more of it. Whether or not Kunstler actually felt he was insulted or was merely trying to stir the pot, it was clear that Judge Hoffman wasn't going to humor him or his clients. Throughout the trial, they frequently spoke out when they thought something was unfair. Every time, Judge Hoffman was indifferent. As the prosecution called more witnesses, they hammered home the idea that the defendants had deliberately incited violence during the protests. On October 8, 1969, undercover Chicago PD officer Robert Pearson took the stand. He had posed as a member of the Yippies' security team and claimed that on August 26, 1968, Abby Hoffman said, we're going to mess up the pigs and the convention. Pearson also testified about the speech Black Panther Bobby Seale gave in Lincoln Park that same day. But Seale objected. His lawyer, Charles Gary, was in the hospital. Seale wanted Gary there in case he needed to object to something. However, Judge Hoffman refused to halt the testimony. He wouldn't recognize Charles Gary as Seale's attorney because William Kunstler had represented him during pretrial hearings. In Judge Hoffman's opinion, Seale had a lawyer. If Seale didn't like him, that was his problem. Officer Pearson continued describing Seale's speech, claiming he said, quote, the time for singing, we shall overcome, is past. Now is the time to act, to go buy a 357 Magnum, a 45, and a carbine, and kill the pigs. During cross-examination, Seal tried to question Pearson himself in place of Charles Gary, but Judge Hoffman wouldn't allow that either. Though Kunstler once again insisted he wasn't representing Seal, Judge Hoffman pointedly ignored Seal's request to conduct a cross-examination himself. Seal grew angrier as each successive prosecution witness was dismissed without any cross-examination. 
The situation finally came to a head during the testimony of William Frappoli, an undercover Chicago PD officer who had infiltrated the leadership of the protest organizing committees. During his testimony on October 29, 1969, Frappoli stated that defendants Rennie Davis, David Dellinger, and Lee Weiner all discussed the pros and cons of nonviolent versus militant demonstrations at an organizing meeting. Frappoli claimed that Mobes Rennie Davis suggested, quote, we would block cars driving down the street. We would block people coming and going out of buildings. We would stop people from walking down the street. We would run through stores. We would smash windows and generally try and shut the loop down. Then Frappoli moved on to Bobby Seale's speech at Lincoln Park. All hell broke loose. Once again, Seal objected to being discussed without his attorney present. Once again, Judge Hoffman insisted that Kunstler was his attorney. But this time, Seal refused to quiet down. As Judge Hoffman and Seal argued back and forth, the judge finally decided he'd had enough of Seal's outbursts. Using previous legal precedent as an excuse, Judge Hoffman ordered the court-martials to tie a gag around Seal's mouth and handcuff him to his chair. For the next eight days of trial, the process was repeated over and over again, much to the horror of the assembled press. Finally, on November 5, 1969, Judge Hoffman realized that Seal wouldn't relent he decided to sever Seal from the trial and have him tried separately from the others at a later date. In the meantime, he sentenced Seal to four years in prison for contempt of court. In one stroke, the Chicago 8 became the Chicago 7. After the proverbial smoke cleared from the incident with Bobby Seal, the prosecution called its final witness, Erwin Bach. Like William Frappoli, Bach was an undercover police officer who had maneuvered himself into the upper levels of the defendants' organizations. During his testimony, he emphasized that many of the defendants had worked together to plan the protests. He discussed how Rennie Davis, Abby Hoffman, David Dellinger, Thomas Hayden, Lee Weiner, and John Freunds had all discussed tactics such as breaking windows, pulling fire alarms, and setting small fires. It was damning testimony that, if true, confirmed the accusations that the men had met and conspired to incite riots during the convention. With the court clearly inclined to support the prosecution, Bach's testimony was a major hurdle for the defense to overcome. But William Kunstler and Leonard Weinglass were undaunted. They had faced long odds in court before and they were confident that they had enough evidence to exonerate their clients, if Judge Hoffman let them present it. Coming up, the defense presents its case. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to the story. From the moment the trial against the Chicago 8 began on September 24, 1969, 74-year-old Judge Julius Hoffman was not amused by the young and rebellious defendant's actions. But despite the sobering week when 32-year-old Black Panther Party chairman Bobby Seale was literally bound and gagged in the courtroom, the now Chicago 7 were determined to carry on their unorthodox behavior. Many of the witnesses defense attorneys William Kunstler and Leonard Weinglass called were youthful members of the counterculture. Their rebellious attitude stood in stark contrast to the stiff, serious police officers who had testified for the prosecution. When the defense began its case on December 11, 1969, one of the first witnesses was folk singer Phil Oakes, his testimony reflected the defendant's irreverent nature. At one point during Oak's testimony, Kunstler asked him to sing one of the songs he planned to perform at the protest in Lincoln Park on August 27, 1968. It was an unorthodox strategy, but the goal was to show that the song's peaceful nature reflected the Yippies' intentions for the protests. Unsurprisingly, the prosecution objected, and Oakes never sang his song. But the attempt to get him to put on a mini-concert while on the stand was a powerful indication of the defense's willingness to push the limit of what was acceptable courtroom behavior. Following Oakes on the witness stand was poet Allen Ginsberg, who had helped put together the Yippies' Festival of Life. Like Phil Oakes' testimony, Ginsburg's time on the stand contained many unorthodox moments. At one point, he went through a lengthy demonstration of the Hare Krishna chants he and other protesters used during the protest to encourage peace instead of violence. Although it may have seemed like the defense wasn't taking the trial seriously, that was anything but the case. Yes, part of it was fun and games for the purpose of thumbing their noses at the prosecution and Judge Hoffman, but it was also extremely important for the defense to show to the jury that the counterculture wasn't full of rioting rebels. It was made up of creative individuals determined to find peaceful ways to incite change. Ginsburg's testimony also contained serious moments. He confirmed that Yippies Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin intended for their demonstrations in Lincoln Park to be peaceful. Rubin had doggedly pursued the proper permits, but the city had denied him. Additionally, Ginsburg steadfastly maintained that he had never seen Jerry Rubin smoke anything during the convention week, tobacco or otherwise. A major point of the prosecution's case was that Rubin had incited violence when he flicked a cigarette butt at a group of policemen. However, None of the witnesses for either side could recollect ever seeing him smoke something. There was the possibility that he had picked it up off the ground, but if that had been the case, wouldn't he have grabbed something more substantial to throw, like a rock? Of course, the question of whether or not Jerry Rubin smoked wasn't the issue at hand. 
It was whether or not the defendants had conspired to incite riots during the Democratic National Convention. To speak on that subject, the defense called Black Panther Party chairman Bobby Seale to the stand. Earlier in the trial, Seale had been bound and gagged for speaking out against the injustices he perceived in Judge Hoffman's courtroom. But on the witness stand, with his lawyer, Charles Gary, at his side, Seale was finally able to make his case. Even though he was no longer a defendant in this particular trial, Seale wanted to make it clear that he, in no way, shape, or form, conspired with the other defendants to incite riots in Chicago. In fact, he had never even met any of them prior to making his speech in Lincoln Park. Regarding the speech itself, Seale argued that he wasn't trying to incite violence. He claimed he was urging the black community to act in self-defense if the police attacked them. In fact, he had spoken out against the tactics protesters were using to resist police brutality. In his speech, Seal said, quote, If we just go out running in big groups with rocks and bottles, we're not going to do nothing against 500 pigs with shotguns and 357 magnums. Although he spoke of upending the status quo, sometimes in revolutionary terms, Seal wasn't advocating violence against the police. He was trying to incite change, but he wasn't encouraging riots. Following Seal's testimony, Yippie Abby Hoffman took the stand to defend his role in the protests. When Kunstler asked him point blank if he and the other defendants had conspired to incite riots, Hoffman colorfully responded with, Conspiracy? Hell, we couldn't agree on lunch. Although his response was played for laughs, Hoffman was correct. There was actually a stark absence of organization between the various political action groups during the convention week. Hoffman's own organization, the Yippies, didn't even have a formal leadership structure. Although Hoffman and Jerry Rubin were singled out as the leaders because they had organized the Festival of Life during the convention week, they had no official title. According to Hoffman, one thing that I was very particular about was that we didn't have any concept of leadership involved. There was a feeling of young people that they didn't want to listen to leaders. We had to create a kind of situation in which people would be allowed to participate and become, in a real sense, their own leaders. In effect, Hoffman argued that there was no way he could conspire to organize a riot because he could barely organize anything at all. All he wanted was to get people to come peacefully and legally spend the week in Lincoln Park. What they did after that was their own decision. The only other defendant to take the stand for the defense was 28-year-old Rennie Davis of Moab. Like Abby Hoffman, Davis insisted that Moab's protests were nonviolent. But when Leonard Weinglass tried to introduce Moab's 21-page document outlining their plans for the convention, Judge Hoffman refused to admit it as evidence. Weinglass persisted, claiming that if the document contained plans to bomb the amphitheater or to create a disturbance or riot in the city streets, we clearly would have had this document in the government's case. But it contains the contrary, and that is why it is being offered. Judge Hoffman refused to budge. 
Nevertheless, Rennie Davis pressed on, emphasizing his dedication to making sure Moeb's protests during the convention were peaceful. In fact, the only suggestion of violence that Davis could think of had come from one of the undercover police officers, Irv Bach. Five days before the convention, Bach allegedly showed Davis a balloon that could be maneuvered to drop down on a desired location. Although Bach didn't outright suggest something nefarious, he implied that something could be attached to the balloon and dropped on top of the building where the convention was being held. Under cross-examination, Richard Schultz tried to get Rennie Davis to admit that he had favored militant action over conventional protests for the demonstrations in Chicago. Although Davis admitted he had used civil disobedience for protests in Washington, D.C. in October 1967, Davis wholeheartedly denied advocating for anything other than peaceful protests during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. After Davis, it seemed like the defense had done all it could. Kunstler and Weinglass prepared to rest their case when proceedings resumed on Monday, February 2, 1970. However, over the weekend, Dr. Ralph Abernathy, the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and co-chairman of MOBE, unexpectedly became available to testify. Abernathy had successfully executed peaceful demonstrations during the convention. Kunstler wanted him to testify that he had worked with many of the defendants during the lead-up to the protests. But when the proceedings began on Monday morning, Abernathy was still at O'Hare Airport. Judge Hoffman refused to wait for him to arrive. Faced with yet another perceived injustice, Kunstler couldn't hold his anger in for another moment. He erupted at Judge Hoffman, launching a furious tirade. He said, quote, I have sat here for four and a half months and watched the objections denied and sustained by your honor, and I know that this is not a fair trial. I know it in my heart. If I have to lose my license to practice law, and if I have to go to jail, I can't think of a better cause to go to jail for and to lose my license for than to tell your honor that you are doing a disservice to the law in saying that we can't have Ralph Abernathy on the stand. You are saying truth will not come out because of the technicality of a lawyer's representation. If that is what their liberty depends upon, then I think there is nothing really more for me to say. I'm going to turn back to my seat with the realization that everything I have learned throughout my life has come to naught, that there is no meaning in this court and there is no law in this court, and these men are going to jail by virtue of a legal lynching, and that your honor is wholly responsible for that. And if this is what your career is going to end on, if this is what your pride is going to be built on, I can only say to your honor, good luck to you. Although many in the largely pro-defense audience applauded William Kunstler's bravado, Judge Hoffman wasn't amused. He had the unruly crowd thrown out of the courtroom and got the proceedings back on track. The trial continued into its final phases and went to the jury on February 14, 1970. 
It was Valentine's Day, but Judge Hoffman wasn't inclined to show the defendants any love. The jury had scarcely left the room when he doled out multiple criminal contempt of court charges. For the past five months, Judge Hoffman had kept a record of every snide comment, every brooch of courtroom decorum, every instance of disrespect. He read out their list of transgressions, refusing to rise for the judge, disrupting testimony with loud laughter, disrupting testimony with comments out of turn, disrespecting the American flag, impersonating a judge, and many more petty offenses. By impersonating a judge, Hoffman was referring to the day both Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin wore judicial robes to court, then used them to wipe the mud off their shoes. Hoffman felt deeply disrespected and wasn't going to let defense get away with turning his courtroom into a circus tent. He gave both defense lawyers and the seven defendants 159 charges in total. Before the jury had even delivered a verdict, everyone involved with the defense was sentenced to jail, ranging from two and a half months to a little over four years. No matter what the jury decided, Judge Hoffman made sure the defendants would be punished. Coming up, the jury delivers their verdict. And now, back to the story. On February 18, 1970, the jury in the case of the Chicago 7 delivered their verdict. All seven defendants were acquitted of conspiring to incite a riot, meaning they hadn't worked as a team to plan any violence. However, all of them, except for Chicago locals John Freunds and Lee Weiner, were still convicted of violating the Federal Anti-Riot Act, which prohibited crossing state lines with the intent to incite, promote, encourage, or participate in a riot. On top of the punishment Hoffman had given them for contempt of court, Davis, Dellinger, Hayden, Hoffman, and Rubin were all given five-year prison sentences and $5,000 fines. But for the moment, they were released on bail, pending an appeal of the case. Although the entire trial had been an uphill battle, the defendants remained hopeful that a higher court would see things their way. But even with Judge Hoffman out of the picture, that wasn't a guarantee. After the trial ended, one juror remarked that the defendants should have been convicted for their appearance, their language, and their lifestyle. Another went as far as to say that during the convention protests, the defendants should have been shot down by the police. Luckily for the defendants, the appellate process wouldn't involve a jury. Their lawyers would make their argument directly to a panel of judges. But the wheels of justice turned slowly. The appeals for the actual convictions, as well as the numerous contempt of court charges, wouldn't be heard for another two years. In the meantime, the anti-war movement was gaining momentum, and many of the defendants dove back into the fight with gusto. Although President Richard Nixon had claimed during the 1968 general election that he had a plan to end the Vietnam War, he refused to put a firm date on when that would be. We have adopted a plan 
which we have worked out in cooperation with the South Vietnamese for the complete withdrawal of all U.S. combat ground forces and their replacement by South Vietnamese forces on an orderly scheduled timetable. I have not and do not intend to announce the timetable. As a result, anti-war protests continued across the nation. Like those during the 1968 Democratic National Convention, many of these protests featured clashes between demonstrators and the police. On May 4, 1970, less than three months after the Chicago 8 trial ended, four college students lost their lives when members of the Ohio National Guard opened fire on unarmed students at Kent State University. Similar to the Chicago protests, the government refused to accept any culpability for what happened, assigning blame to the protesters instead. The president shares the sadness that all Americans feel about these unnecessary deaths that occurred today at Kent State University. The president feels this should remind us all once again that when dissent turns to violence, it invites tragedy. On May 3, 1971, a year after the Kent State Massacre, Chicago 8 defendants Rennie Davis, John Froines, and Abby Hoffman helped organize an anti-war rally in Washington, D.C. that drew tens of thousands of people. But after the attempts to hold peaceful protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention had failed to lead to meaningful change, the so-called May Day demonstrations included willful acts of civil disobedience. These included blocking the streets, stopping traffic, and harassing public officials. In total, 12,000 demonstrators were arrested, including Davis, Freunds, and Hoffman. They were once again indicted on riot and conspiracy charges, but so were hundreds of others. It was too hard for the government to pin blame on all of them, so the case never went to trial. However, there was still the Chicago 7 appeal to deal with. On February 8th and 9th, 1972, nearly two years after the original ruling, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals finally heard the arguments relating to the various convictions the Chicago 7 defendants had received. And on May 11, 1972, the court gave their ruling. Although the defendants would have to undergo a new trial for the contempt charges, the overall count had been reduced from 159 to 52. The court also reversed Bobby Seale's contempt charges. In addition, his separate trial had never gone forward, so he never faced any recourse for his role in the convention protests. While the court continued to deliberate on the criminal charges, the defendants received an unexpected boost from the Supreme Court of the United States. In an unrelated case, the Supreme Court ruled on June 19, 1972, that warrantless wiretapping was unconstitutional. If the Chicago 8 case went to a retrial, the government would be forced to release any electronic surveillance they conducted on the defendants. And because the wiretaps were illegal, the prosecution wouldn't be allowed to use any information from them to argue its case. The Seventh Circuit's decision arrived on November 21, 1972, 
two weeks after President Richard Nixon won re-election for a second term. The decision was largely based on judicial errors by Judge Hoffman. The Seventh Circuit acknowledged that Judge Hoffman took a deprecatory and often antagonistic attitude toward the defense. The convictions for crossing a state line to incite a riot were reversed and a new trial was ordered. Furthermore, the Seventh Circuit's decision revealed that the FBI had indeed bugged the defense attorney's offices, with Judge Hoffman's knowledge. Because of this reliance on illegal activity, the court had little doubt that the wrongdoing of FBI agents would have required reversal of the convictions on the substantive charges. This time, it was the government that faced an uphill battle in the retrial. Perhaps sensing that it was a lost cause, the U.S. Attorney's Office announced on January 4, 1973, that it would not seek a new trial for Rennie Davis, David Dellinger, Thomas Hayden, Abby Hoffman, and Jerry Rubin on the charge of crossing state lines to incite a riot. A little over three weeks later, on January 27, 1973, the U.S., North Vietnam, South Vietnam, and the Viet Cong signed a ceasefire in Paris. It was a major victory for the Chicago 8 defendants and the anti-war movement at large. The good news continued to stream in. The trial for the various contempt of court charges was held on October 29, 1973. Ultimately, defendants Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and defense attorney William Kunstler were each found guilty of two counts of contempt of court. But no sentence was given to them under the consideration that the contempt came from judicial error, judicial or prosecutorial misconduct, and judicial or prosecutorial provocation. When all was said and done, none of the Chicago 8 defendants saw any jail time for their roles in the 1968 Democratic National Convention protests. Although it was a draining process, the trial brought significant publicity to the anti-war movement and helped bring it into the consciousness of mainstream American society. It may have taken longer than they wanted, but by April 1973, the last American combat soldiers left Vietnam. The last remaining personnel left two years later in April 1975. In total, Three million Americans served in the Vietnam War. 58,000 of them lost their lives, with another 150,000 seriously wounded. Although it's impossible to say for sure, without the actions of the Chicago 8, those numbers could have been much higher. Even though they knew the odds were against them, they stood up for what they believed in. And in the end, they emerged triumphant. Thanks again for tuning in to our Not Guilty Summer of 69 special. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode of Not Guilty. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, 
the summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Muhammad Ali to the Zodiac Killer. If you're interested in learning more about the summer of 69, be sure to check out our new Parcast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Not Guilty is written by Alex Benedon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.